Chapter 5. When Liberation Leads to Oppression Before we bring this conflict to a close, let us first investigate the wider impact to civilians. The Japanese advance had drastically impacted the lives of civilians in Southeast Asia, including Burma, the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, Korea, China, and the Philippines. These locations experienced a dramatic shift in societal, political, and economic activity, as some embraced the co-prosperity sphere while others resisted. Burma When the Japanese army occupied Burma, they ignited chaos between the Karens, natives of Burma, and the Burma Independence Army, BIA, who helped the Japanese invade the country. Many villages were destroyed by the combined forces of the Japanese and BIA, and several massacres were committed. POWs captured in the initial six months of glory were forced into slave labor, primarily to create a railway between Burma and India, which would claim the lives of 270,000 workers. Burma became a battlefield, with Chinese and Americans fighting the Japanese. In addition, the British, in their retreat to India, followed a scorched-earth policy destroying major government buildings, oil wells, and silver mines to keep them from the Japanese. The nation was greatly divided, as it had experienced a long history of resisting British rule. The Japanese had promised the BIA support in return for military assistance and general cooperation. It is worth noting that even though the Japanese propaganda of the time, Asia for Asians, was perceived by many as a chance for freedom, the Japanese Imperial Command never intended all Asians to be equal. The resistance fighters were a motley crew of communists, anti-fascist, Christian monarchists, and Buddhists, all united in contesting what they saw as just another violent wave of imperialist oppression. Dutch East Indies Collaboration was also present in the Dutch East Indies, with the wave of nationalism infecting much of the Indonesian populace. The imprisonment of 120,000 Dutch nationals was conducted, allowing the employment of Indonesians into middle management positions within the country. However, the new rulers, of course, filled the now vacant top positions. In addition, much of the Japanese propaganda for the liberation of Asia, with firmness we fight, with kindness we build, became deeply embedded into the nation's politics. It is, however, worth noting that groups such as the profoundly religious Islamic community of the nation were never converted to the Japanese cause. Politics aside, it appeared that liberation was taking its toll on the economic life of thousands. In Singapore, residents could only buy rice if they had an approved identity card, allocating 600 grams of rice per person, not a day, but a month. Ramashu otherwise known as Indonesian laborers, or perhaps slaves is a better term, were also transported to work on the Thai-Burma Railroad. It is estimated that some 10 million Ramashu were willingly handed over to the Japanese by the new puppet leaders of the Dutch East Indies. Malaya To the north of Singapore, the Japanese had installed the Maya military government 
an autocratic state dominated by a secret police force, which aided Japanese intelligence gathering. However, problems during the Japanese occupation emerged with the growth of the Malayan Communist Party. It had begun to get widespread support from China, which promoted independence from both the British and Japanese. Korea Korea, a Japanese colony since 1910, had experienced Japanese liberation for the better part of nearly half a century by the time the war ended. Segregation was deeply ingrained, and natives could not elect members to parliament. The pay gap between Japanese and natives was as high as 30%, and life expectancy differences were as much as 50%. In a policy deeply familiar to Australian readers, the Japanese attempted to breed out and change the local inhabitants via an assimilation policy. This was done in many ways, but some examples included the Korean language being banned in schools and traditional cultural practices being replaced with mandatory Shinto rituals. Finally, it is known that Korea was a major base for human labor in many respects, Nearly 200,000 men were sent into slave labor, and 22,000 were forcibly conscripted into the army. As for women, they were forced into prostitution for the comfort of the Japanese army. It is estimated that some 200,000 women, most of them teenage girls, were taken from Korea and China alone. China In addition to war crimes and raging conflicts since the beginning of 1937, China witnessed other forms of oppression. The Japanese army was responsible for sponsoring the opium trade in China, as drug dealers paid the army for their protection and the drug trade wreaked havoc on the Chinese. The same forces would also openly plunder Chinese property in occupied areas, looting stores and stealing food. The latter led to episodes of rolling famine. In the wake of all these atrocities, the Japanese attempted to establish an appearance of legitimacy similar to what it had done in Burma and the Dutch East Indies, mainly by forming puppet regimes in Peking and Nanking. Though, as it was poetically put by one historian, Lenga, to believe that Chinese who were defeated and ground down by the imperial army would enthusiastically cooperate with Japan was one of the stupidest assumptions underlying the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Philippines. Apart from perhaps China, the Philippines saw some of the worst atrocities and strongest resistance of the entire war. Japanese propaganda attempted to ignite mass collaboration, but ultimately failed. So instead, invading forces resorted to brutal oppression. As a result, men, women, and children were massacred village after village in an attempt to force the populace into submission. At this point, I've decided not to go into all the details of gore and horror, as it goes beyond what I think is appropriate for a book for young adults. Chapter 6. When Every Soul Becomes a Soldier Wars don't wind down. They spiral out of control. While most people would be familiar with the battles of Okinawa and Iwo Jima, many would have never heard of the invasion at Peleliu mainly because in the end it was deemed effectively pointless. This small island, half the size of Iwo Jima, was, in fact, one of the ugliest assignments of the war. 
a place where many hardened Marines would solidify their belief that they were not simply fighting another race, but, in their words, almost another species. Nothing made this fact clearer than the sign erected at Peleliu, which greeted the single Marine division on its arrival. We will build a barrier across the Pacific with our bodies. The Japanese strategy after the fall of the Philippines and the completion of the air and naval blockade was one of attrition, but not just any attrition, an attrition so brutal that it would dissuade the Allies from their main objective of unconditional surrender. Iwo Jima, raising the flag on Mount Suribachi. The small volcanic island of Iwo Jima would be the first Allied strike on the Japanese homeland and its first taste of complete attrition in February 1945. The well-fortified island, with its moonscape landing beach of volcanic ash, demanded the lives of 6,102 Marines be taken, while the Japanese Defense Force of 21,000 only surrendered 216 troops after one month and one week of ferocious fighting. It would also become the site of one of the most recognizable photos in history. What is less known, however, is that this photo, which has been enshrined in history, was a reenactment. The true flag raising was erected haphazardly by Marines who had found a fragment of an old pipe, shot a hole in one end, and then tied a flag to it. The effect of the Marines claiming the mountain was electric, and troops erupted in cheers. However, it was later replaced with a much larger flag and raised by six men for the photo op, which would inspire millions of Americans back home. What the picture did not capture, however, was the 19,000 Marines lying broken in hospital ships just off the coast of the small island. Okinawa Okinawa was the largest island to be invaded by the Allied forces in April 1945 and was intended to be the last major objective before the main Japanese home islands. Its capture would provide airfields and anchorages from which an attack on Japan and its shipping routes could commence in totality. However, Almost paradoxically, with this victory, the Americans began to lose faith, and the defeated Japanese grew in confidence, the key factor being slow brutality. The Japanese had welded themselves to the island behind servile interlocking lines of defense, which required a step-by-step -step purging by the American forces. What made matters worse was the civilian involvement. The propaganda had done its work and thousands of Okinawans aided the Japanese side. Moreover, the ones that did not fight voluntarily were used as human shields. Over and over again, soldiers were confronted with a cave that needed to be purged of combatants, with women and children being held at gunpoint. They were never going to leave alive, so in the end, they were all incinerated by flamethrowers together. In addition to the grinding brutality on land, the prolonged invasion gave time for the Japanese to unleash its new kamikaze unit. Hundreds of 16- and 17-year-old boys with no in-air experience, only taught on the ground due to fuel shortages, were welded into planes with heavy bombs and sent on a one-way mission to destroy American naval units. The effect was devastating, and the Navy lost more men than the Army and Marines on land, a fact almost unheard of up to this point. After 100 days of attrition, the results were in. The Americans had suffered a staggering 50,000 casualties, 
with 110,000 Japanese soldiers and Okinawans having been wiped out. Japan. On the home island, the local inhabitants, once kept in the dark about the loss of Midway, were now in full preparation for a long and bloody siege. Japanese military planners had hoped that a policy of forward defense would have spared any harm coming to the homeland. But since the fall of Saipan, Japan had been victim to thousands of bomber raids. The raids had incinerated six major cities and 60 other smaller ones. When B-29 bomber crews dropped their fire strikes and napalm ordnance on the cities and towns of paper and wood, a firestorm of indescribable heat would engulf the city. Residents who had not evacuated in the 72 hours prior, which was a standard warning window provided by Curtis LeMay's bomber command, were either burnt alive, boiled as they tried to dive into nearby rivers and wells, or suffocated to death as the immense firestorm devoured almost all the air in the narrow streets. Allied bombing raids over a nine-month period would take over one million lives and leave 10 million Japanese homeless. Propaganda and controlling the public narrative was a task that fell to the Cabinet Information Bureau. This organization, along with the Kempeitai, military police, ensured that narratives and ideologies contrary to that of the nationalistic militarists were countered by threats of force, imprisonment, or death. In addition, the Peace Preservation Law gave the government control over cities, resulting in an atmosphere where dissent was extremely rare. Into this competition vacuum arose the Imperial Rule Assistance Association, and it is clear that the IRAA took over political life. The IRAA became the monopoly political party and was of statist, extremely conservative, ultra-nationalist ideology. However, as the war went on and Tojo was replaced, extreme attitudes slowly began to erode. 